it's been 2,000 years since the Roman Empire, and yet, if you believe the memes, and I do, men are still obsessed with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire has a stranglehold on Western civilization. It seems to set the standard for nations, empires, and political power. But where are the women? In this history, what happened to the wives? I wanted to understand more about the life of wives in history, but I felt so stymied by the historical record. So often, the experience of women was translated through the voices of male historians. So often, the experience was just missing. Who were these women who set the standard? Why were they so invisible? And how can we better understand them and the historical shadow they cast on our lives? Welcome to This American Ex-Wife. I'm Liz Lenz. Donna Zuckerberg is an American classicist, feminist, and writer. She is the author of the book, Not All Dead White Men, about the appropriation of classics by misogynist groups on the internet. She's a brilliant scholar and a person living out the complexities of the ex-wife life. And she's here to talk to us about the Roman Empire, feminism, and more. Let's get to the show. Donna, hi, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much um, for being on this podcast and being willing to uh, lend your expertise to talking about the history of marriage and ex-wives. And I'm so excited to get into it with you. Um, so let's just go. Let's go. Um yeah, let's do it. Donna, you're so smart, and so much of your expertise is about history. And when I emailed you to say, like, hey, I want to talk about these things, you said something so interesting. You were like, well, how much can we really even know about the history of what marriage was like? Because so much of it is recorded by men. Talk to me about what you meant by that. I, I remember when I was teaching uh, a lot of I, I was shocked by how many times in a class my students would ask me something and I would be like, okay, well, we don't know. And here here are all the ways in which we don't know the answer to that question. I could I could like sort of sketch out the the boundaries of the limits of our knowledge on this. Um uh because I both didn't want to be saying I have no idea the answer to that all the time, but but it it's true, right? And it's you just want to say that in a way that makes you sound smart so that your students don't immediately <laughs> like feel like you've lost all authority. Um, with this, so when we're talking about ancient marriage, you're making guesses a lot of the time from the material evidence that's left over. So like from houses and like the trash there, um, you know, uh, if you're looking at archaeological sites or you're looking at literary evidence, which 98 percent of the time is written by men. Um, and there's actual literature and laws, which sometimes give sort of interesting complementary pictures. Uh, so just to give one super fast example, you know, super fast asterisk because I'm a scholar. <laughs> um, so in, in Thucydides, uh, history of the Peloponnesian War. Um, there's this long extended funeral oration by Pericles, where he is he's giving this uh this speech in honor of the Athenian dead. 
And at one point he says, well, what can we say about women? The best thing we could say about women is for them not to be spoken about at all. Like that's, that's a sign that you're doing your job right as an Athenian wife if nobody has anything to say about you because otherwise you're a shameless hussy probably. I mean, the last part is implied. Shameless, <laughs> shameless hussy is always <laughs> implied. Like it's just always yes. implied, yes. <laughs> At the same time, you have all of these tragedies that are being put on. Um, and the way that tragedy works is that the, the stage always looks pretty much the same. There's a building in the backdrop with two big double doors and that represents the palace and people will come out of the palace into sort of a public square to speak. And there's always the sense that female characters, when they talk, they're already doing something a little transgressive by leaving their house and going out and addressing the chorus. So there's this, you know, women should be neither seen nor heard element uh, in Athenian politics. But at the same time, we know that Pericles had this very important citizenship law that he introduced, which said that to be an Athenian citizen, you had to have a citizen mother and a citizen father. So there's something very important going on with, with women and their political role in producing more citizens, uh, but also this rhetoric on the literary side that, you know, we don't ever want to hear from the women. Yeah, it's so difficult. So um, one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on was like when I was researching a lot about the history of marriage, I, um, I, I actually a little bit had a panic attack because I am not a historian. I am not an academic. And uh, I was writing this chapter about, you know, like, okay, let's, let's talk about like how marriage has functioned a little bit through history. And I started stressing out because I was like, wait, nobody really understands, right? And like my my editors, like, can you talk more about like ex-wives in ancient Greece? And I was like, I cannot, like, because it's not, <laughs> literally people cannot. Yeah, yeah, and I was like reading all these articles, and um, I used to be homeschooled, so I'm like really good at self teaching, but um, but like. <laughs> Which is an aside. Nobody needs to know. Nobody cares. But um, but I was like, but there's no real consensus. And there's a lot of like, you know, I was reading uh, these articles that were like, well, you know, marriage got really liberal in like ancient Greece. And then and then I'd be reading other things. It was like, and, you know, women really didn't have a say on who their children married. And I'm like, what? How do we? And I think it's important, right, because marriage is a system, right? Like it's a it's a political tool. It is used for like inheritance. It's a use for property. It's used for uh, like genetic insurance of, you know, lineage. And but it's so in order to understand what marriage means to us, we have to understand marriage of the past. But I don't really think we understand marriage of the past super well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And then when you're talking about ancient Greece, for example, there, I mean, there are going to be methodological issues with talking about any, any historical civilization. But one thing that comes up a lot of the time is that um, things were really different, for example, in Athens and Sparta, right? People, people know <laughs> that. Uh, but also... Arguably, things were a lot more similar in Athens and Sparta with the super elite than they were yes. in within Athens, you know, 
Yeah, like if, if you're talking about women not being seen or heard, then I think that you're you're pretty obviously not talking about any women who are not super elite, right. or at least elite. Um, it, even it, it's so problematic to be using Aristophanes and his plays as evidence of literally anything, but in his play Thesmophoriazusai, which is about it's about, oh my gosh. So, sorry, there, I'm like, how much context do I want to give here? So um, it's a really funny play. It's about this, so it's, it's women at the Thesmophoria Festival. And the Thesmophoria Festival is interesting because it is one of few times in the year when women did leave their homes and they go and collect in one place and they honor Demeter and Persephone. So it's a really important festival for women and one of few times when they're encouraged to form these homosocial bonds and and leave the family sphere. But anyway, in Aristophanes' play, the women are using this opportunity to take a vote that they're going to execute the tragedian Euripides because of his misogynistic depictions of women in his plays. That's that's the that's the premise of this right. play. And one woman comes up and she's a wreath seller. Like the, the wreaths you would wear on your head. And she says, you know, my husband died in the war. I'm out there selling wreaths. And because of Euripides' godlessness in his plays, nobody believes in religion anymore. And I can't sell wreaths. And my livelihood is gone. So let's kill this bastard. That's sort of... Um, and again, I don't want to use Aristophanes as evidence of anything. But I do think that you can you could broadly suspect that there are plenty of women in not the elite class who are out there in the agora making money, supporting their families, not being silent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, I I think too, we have this idea that like, like that marriage is just this like love union and the people just do it because they love each other. But when you like trace it back through history, you really see it as like a tool of control, a tool of money, a tool of history. And, you know, and it's really hard to parse out the ways in which, you know, it has been used and like wives have been used, you know, in these, in these like really subtle ways, right? Because like you can't, use literature all the time because like if we were going off of literature then we would just assume anytime a woman left her husband she ended up in front of a train right like Anna Karenina or something like that like is which is like not the case right like even like even Tolstoy it was like his sister divorced her husband and she did not end up in front of a train she had a great, wonderful life. Uh, and uh, and so, right, like, so literature functions in a way that is very imaginative. All, you know, also, we're not knocking literature. We love books. Uh, and it's way to, like, discuss interiority is wonderful. But... But there, but there's also like a real tension in understanding like how marriage functions in in history and how it functions in personal lives. And then we just really have 
no idea when it comes to history because like you're saying like women weren't really writing these stories so like you know and and what we have is like literature like by men that's like and now all these women decided not to have sex and it was hilarious uh hijinks ensued so hilarious so hilarious and we're gonna get to that but boner um, jokes for all (laughs) boner Um, jokes for all yeah that was actually the title of this podcast was boner jokes for all but we didn't I assume that was also the original <laughs> title of every Aristophanes play. Yes. You know, it's those it's those squeamish monks yes. copying yes. the lists of names down, just changed them. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, the squeamish yeah. monks who ruined so much for all of us. But one of the the first pieces of your writing I read was your Washington Post op-ed about Lysistrata. Um and I I loved it, and it was so interesting, and I have to, like, confess that, like, I um, I was telling people that during my divorce, I was doing a Liz Estrada, because that's... I love thank that. Thank you. It was a yes. really good bit for a while. Um, but, you know, there's... And, and I think it ties in, so, like, during my research and talking to women, you know, there's, like, this idea... That like, oh, you don't divorce. You just control your man through sex. And I have to say it's so pervasive. So like your op-ed was talking about this, this kind of like me too idea where Alyssa Milano specifically, and I remember this tweet happening where she was just like, ladies, like just don't have sex with like bad men. And everybody was like, yeah, make a tweet go viral. And you were like, this is way more complicated and um like talk talk to us about how we reinterpret these these tropes of the past as solutions for our current political problems being these you know heterosexual relationships that we have yeah that that (laughs) article and that tweet came at such a wild time in my life for me because i uh So about one year earlier, I had signed a contract to write a book about feminist reception of Lysistrata. Um, I was six months pregnant and I was like, I was like, yeah, and and three months away from from my first book coming out. And I was like, you know, I should do I should I should plan a second book right now. Uh, This is this is a smart idea. Uh, No. Well, I mean. I kind of figured, you know, after the baby's born, there'll be a few months where I can't think about, I can't hold a single thought in my head. Everything up there is going to be oatmeal mush. And then eventually I'll start to feel like I want to go back to work and it'll be so great to have a project to go back to when that is the case. Um, And then I I did start to have that feeling like I wanted to think thoughts again right around when Alyssa Milano tweeted this. And I was like, okay, yes, this is it. I'm going to get back into this project. Um, I had recently decided to get a divorce. So suddenly it was like, yes, this is it. I'm going to get back into this project. I don't know. I don't know if you felt like that when you decided to get a divorce. That suddenly it was like you had this like. Did you have a bit of like a surge of like creative energy? Well, my story is a little different in that my partner was not very supportive of the work I was doing. So that when I finally moved out and all of a sudden I was not in the house anymore, I discovered I had so much time, which I didn't anticipate. It was like a shocking side effect of divorce where I was like, oh, now that I am not... (laughs) 
managing a grown man, I suddenly have all this time to work. And it was incredible. Yes, I had this like huge, like these huge levels of productivity because I, I literally wasn't doing all this. And I don't want to misuse the term emotional labor, but I was doing some. I, was, I wasn't doing all that labor anymore. I wasn't picking socks out of couch cushions anymore. Like I wasn't like being like, okay, what do you want for dinner? You know, I was, I had 50-50 childcare all of a sudden. I had equality all of a sudden. And then I felt like my brain came back to me in a way that was like shocking and surprising and uh, wonderful. So yes, I did have this huge burst of creativity and um, and I think I'm still experiencing it, but also it was perhaps a little different. <laughs> I mean, I think one thing you and I might want to talk about is just all the ways in which it's not as different as you think it would be. That like oh, even, right. even if you have a very prog- even if you have a very, you know, progressive marriage and you're both feminists and whatever, you still find yourself doing a lot of quote unquote emotional labor and a lot of, but, you know. But that thing about people thinking they're progressive and then getting into marriage and then realizing it's actually an inherently conservative with a little c institution and it reinforces gender norms so it really doesn't matter how personally progressive you are is like marriage really makes people regress into ways that I think it's really hard for people to admit. Like, you're like, no, like, we're progressive. Like, we split things. It's like, no, statistically, you don't. So somebody is lying to my face. Exactly. Yes. All of that. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, so, so, you know, so the the rhetoric is very different, right? Um, And I thought this was, this was addressed in a really beautiful way in uh, in Maggie Smith's book. Oh, her um, book is so good. One of her little mini chapters, she talks about how progressive men are wolves in sheep's clothing. Mm. Because, because you think that, you know, it, it's like, it's like if, with conservative men, you don't expect them to pull their weight. They're, you know, they're like, oh, I've never changed a diaper. And they're proud of it, you know? Um, but with, with progressive men, it's like when, when they don't, I mean, it, it does require a lot of a, a real extra effort of will and planning and executive function to make things 50-50. Yeah. And when they're just ultimately not willing to do it, it's like, well, shit. When I got, so when I split up for my husband, I was like, oh, I'm so excited. I know this sounds really funny in hindsight, but I literally was. I was like, I'm so excited to date liberal men. And then like six months, I know you're laughing. You're like, oh, you sweet summer child. Like six months, <laughs> six months into my, into my real big post-divorce hoe phase, I was like, oh, there's literally no difference except for the t-shirts they wear. Like, one guy's wearing a, like, <laughs> like one guy's wearing like a Trump shirt and the other guy's wearing a Bernie shirt and they both still won't go down on me. So I don't like, what's the difference? <laughs> yep, exactly that. It's like, even, and they both even mansplain. most progressive. They both mansplain. Yes, oh, all the time. Just as bad. Worse yeah. almost. Because, worse almost because they don't have the sense to know. Like, like a conservative dude knows what he's doing and doesn't care. But, like, a liberal dude does not know what he's doing and doesn't want you to tell him. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever met a progressive dude who I didn't feel like either 
when they tell you about their past or looking at them in the present, like there was not a moment when they so easily could have been or will get red pilled. A lot of men are like, well, not me. I'm the good guy. Right, like I'm the good guy. Hashtag, not all men. Hashtag yeah. not all men. Right, like hashtag yeah. I'm the good guy. No, I wash the dishes. It's fine, and I um, I but I keep like I hear and I hear a lot, you know, because of what I write, I get a lot of feedback, and I hear a lot of like what men are saying, and yet I see the statistics. Right, like it's just an overwhelming statistic that men are still not doing equal work. They're still not doing equal housework, child care I mean I see statistics that say like women who out earn their spouses are three times more likely to be victims of domestic violence like I see these things and yet I hear men saying like oh not me not all men and then I'll go out on dates with people who are progressive and then I'll hear them say things that are like so red pill coded right because this is also like what I write about and I'll be like that you are you are literally one foot on the edge, another foot on a banana peel, a flipping right over into the edge of <laughs> of like red pill world, and you don't even like and you don't even understand it because you're so invested in your own goodness that you can't see like how much of that toxic ideology and misogyny that has really been absorbed. Um, I mean, if if we want to just just for for a beat give men the benefit of the doubt not that they've done anything to deserve it and they get it all the time this is a, the the kate man empathy yes. concept but yeah but let, let's for let's for for just a moment say that um the expectations of them are lower when it comes to certain kinds of emotional labor and you know especially in in co-parenting relationships, you know, childcare, showing up for their kids. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about the study that Emily Oster shared in her Substack pretty recently about how, where, where the, where they, uh, the, the people doing the study wrote this like fake email to school principals saying that their kid was having trouble and say, you know, and, and they traded off say, and saying like, please get back to us. Uh, I, or either I or my spouse has a lot of availability. Right. And, and what, and in, even in emails where it was coming from the father and where the father was saying, my, my wife is busy, but I have a lot of availability something like 70% of the time the principal was contacting the wife mm-hmm. which is which is wild and and if it was the wife if it, if it was a flipped it was 95% of the time they were contacting the wife right so um so if men want to do better it requires a real uphill both ways walk um and this is where i'm going to cut off the benefit of the doubt and say in my experience, people are not willing to do that uphill both ways walk. Like, I I definitely recognize that bucking social convention is hard and bucking the norms that are expected of you. And, you know, I talk about this with my kids all the time. I'm like, you just got to pick some hills to die on. You can't die on every hill. Uh, they disagree with me. They're like, <laughs> there is no limit of hills that I will die on. Yeah, my daughter will die on every uh, hill. She will. She will. She will just stab herself on every hill. She doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
just exactly yeah it's like just endless energy yeah. for hill down yeah um <laughs> it's like gettysburg but, <laughs> all the time yeah but but for the most part in life you know it's like you gotta you gotta pick a few well-chosen battles um and this just like doesn't seem like one that most men are willing to pick at the end of the day. Well, and this is where we get back to Lysistrata, I think, because, you know, there is so much, like, there's so much rhetoric that really frustrates me, right? Where where women are begging men to, and, and you know what, I saw this, I don't want to call out any specific columnist, but I've seen this in the pages recently of, like, the op-ed section of the New York Times, where there, there in the past year, there were at least a few op-eds where women were like, men, please do this for us. Men, please, like, get in on abortion. Like, men. And it's just like, uh, one of the reasons I got divorced was I was tired of begging for my humanity. I was done. And I was like, I am so, I'm not negotiating with terrorists anymore. Like, (laughs) and I'm like, I'm done. And that's why, like, that's why part of why I wanted to write my book is like, there is power in refusal and I, and I am done, but there is this kind of like, to get back to the Alyssa Milano thing, that it's like, it is now incumbent upon women to either by hook or by crook get men to do these things and I I know I need to stop talking but like I hear it too in wedding advice and dating advice it's like well you got to train him you got to do this it's like oh if he doesn't do this then you don't do that and it is so manipulative and it's awful okay let's talk about it go yeah, it's your job. It's your job to make the incentives align perfectly yes. so that men will behave like human beings. And the incentive is your care body. about you as And the incentive is your fucking body. Let's be clear because like that is the incentive, right? You're not it's not like the incentive is not like chocolate cake. The incentive is like, you know, your vulva. One of the parts of the play Lysistrata that I find really funny is that the people all they're not they're already not having sex. Right. So the when at the beginning of the play, when Lysistrata gets all the women together and she's like, OK, so I have a plan for stopping the war. And the women are like, great, we would love for you to stop the war because the war is taking all of our men away from us and we're not getting laid enough. And then she's like, OK, great. My plan is we're not going to have sex. And they're like, nope, anything but that. <laughs> and it's like, you're already not having sex. That's the whole point. Uh, uh, n- not the whole point, but it, it ends up being a lot more complicated than that. But but that's. I mean, that was your opening bid was I care about this because I'm not getting late enough. So, um, And I think that and I think that ultimately, actually, when it comes down to it, there are a lot of responses to Alyssa Milano's tweet. They were like, oh, seems like my wife's been on a sex strike for years, which way to tell on yourself. Right. A of all. But um, but this also I mean, I think in reality, a lot of the time people just like try to have sex partners whose politics they like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, ideally, you know, although, like you said, there are limits to how much that even that works. But a lot of this, you know, just sort of happens. There was a lot of, you know, around that time, there was a lot of sort of like, if it ain't woke, don't fuck it kind of rhetoric. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of like, um, you know, when I was studying these red pill spaces, there was a lot of like, deny feminists your cop sorry excuse <laughs> oh me. no um, um oh yeah. no no don't do that like oh, oh no. please oh my yeah. god 
Oh no! What yeah. am I gonna do without and, a conservative and then, dick and then in, in my the face? Next, yeah, exactly. And then and then the literal next article is why I never go down on women anymore. And I'm like, oh no. And then <laughs> seems like we're really missing and then out. A year later, it's like we have a male loneliness problem. Whatever could be contributing yeah. to that? It's like, oh, if only we knew the guy or, who did this. <laughs> Or your leader, why I've now found God, which is like a, another interesting, interesting pipeline. Um, that was the Rushvi pipeline. Uh, yeah, I, I do think, though, it is really fascinating that, right, like we've come out of like there is this real I we're still in it, obviously, but there is this like real big like, you know, 2016, 2015, 2017 kind of like where like we're men and we're manly men. And now it's like, and now there's this rhetoric around like, there's a male loneliness problem. And you have like people like David Brooks being like, well, just get married. And it's like, no, sir. (laughs) No, that's like, and also why, why are women's bodies once again, the solution? Why is that the solution again? Like, why is the solution the solution is either the refusal of my body to solve men's politics or like the giving of my body to solve male loneliness. Like why is the solution always me as an object? Why Donna? (laughs) Man, if I had the answer to that, I mean, my, my only answer to that is that that is why I think that the, uh, like let's it's it's Lysistrata time thing does not right. work. Right. Is is that is that you're just reinscribing that problem in a different face. It's like, okay, well, what if actually it was empowering that our bodies are the solution and cause of all of men's problems? And it's like I don't I don't know if I buy that completely. Right. Um Right. It, yeah. Uh it is like you said, like it's a male play. <laughs> it's like written by men, right? Performed by men. Yeah, it is funny, though. And I think that, I mean, what I was what I was trying to get at when I was working on that material Mm -hmm. was that I do think that there ultimately is something sort of like accidentally feminist there in the solidarity that the women find when they're all collected in the same space uh, protesting together Um, Mm. that even maybe even though, you know, I'm sure Aristophanes didn't intend it that way. That that's something somewhat magical and feminist happens, um, but but it's definitely not you know in the realm of of boner jokes. Hashtag not all boner jokes. My mom and dad divorced in the early 1970s. I was so little when they separated, and yet I remember that we no longer had a fat guy in his underwear on the couch after every workday napping in his tidy whities while she worked in the kitchen. After the divorce, she could live more simply. Did she and her kids want macaroni and cheese for dinner? Then that's what she'd do. We worked together as a unit after that, my mom and her two small kids. In the first weeks after she had settled into her new life, he showed up at our apartment door in the small town where she'd found a job. He had thought she'd fail, but she hadn't. She found a job and convinced the local department store to issue her a credit card, even though they'd initially told her she needed her husband's permission. When he came back, surprised that she hadn't called back to him, she let him into the apartment and let him sleep on the couch for a few days. 
but then she told him to go. She didn't need a husband anymore, and she never remarried again. Years later, people would be genuinely astonished. Your mom never remarried? I couldn't figure out why they were surprised. What did she need a husband for? We were able to open all the jars. There was no need to settle again, and she never has. She's 82 today, and I couldn't be more proud of her for saving herself and our little family 50 years ago. You know, when I was reading through your work on the red, the red pilling of men, and I really want to get back to this because I, um, I haven't just seen it like theoretically, right? Like out on dates and like heard men say, you know, these like casually misogynistic things, but like, you know, I think especially when I was going through my divorce and I've seen this happen and it, and heard it happen in so many women's lives where they were like, okay, I was going through this divorce and then all of a sudden like my soon to be ex like changed his tune and was like accusing me of all these things and got a new lawyer. And I know when I was going through mine, I, I had some similar things like that happen. And when I started Googling like the things he was saying, I ended up on Reddit red pill forums where like the things he was saying to me, literally, if I Googled them word for word, they would come up on a red pill forum. And I and it was fascinating to me because I think it was coming from like, I'm frustrated. I'm lonely. I don't have friends to talk to. So I'm going to start Googling these problems. And then the first things that come up are these like misogynistic websites or resources that like tell men you're in a bad time in your life. That's because the deck is stacked against you. This bitch is taking everything from you. And and it becomes a real rhetoric problem, especially in marriage. And I think especially as women like try to negotiate for their freedom. I absolutely. Uh I mean I think it's a problem. It's a problem everywhere to a certain degree, because I think that men have a really hard time accepting all the ways in which patriarchy and misogyny hurt men. Um, and it feels to them like the solution is like, oh, let's just hurt women more. That'll definitely work. Uh, you know, and I was looking back through the tragedy of heterosexuality recently. I, I remember you mentioned it as well. And and there's this it, it, like amazing book, right? Um, it's so and good. Everybody read this book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. I love it. Incredible book. And it, it starts from the premise essentially that that heterosexuality is sort of already resting on a bit of a flawed foundation because under conditions of patriarchy, men and women are not trained to like each other, right? They're, men are trained to see women as as less and women are trained to see men as terrifying. And, and the sort of natural state of affairs under patriarchy is for men and women to find meaningful, effective connection in homosocial bonds with the same gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's, I, I think that that is in part what we are seeing here is that men feel lonely and they look for other men and then they find these really toxic and awful red pill spaces of men being like, yeah, no, it's, it's really hard to be a man. Child support laws. Am I right? 
Um, Even though statistically it's, I, I read this um, book by Richard Cooper, who is a professional misogynist on the internet. And um, I think he calls himself a crypto investor, but I call him a professional misogynist. It's a good gig if you could yeah, get it. Like, yeah, I think yeah, he makes... A professional misogynist. Good for him. Uh, and yeah. I read his book, and uh, and yeah, he was like saying this thing, it was like, oh, like men come out of marriage so finish, financially disadvantaged. I was like, statistically, that isn't even true true like divorce throws women into poverty like overwhelmingly and like but like men have this idea that just because they have to pay like child support that it's like hurting them somehow and it's just like the statistics don't even back that up but okay like you're the victim even if it is true in this in any individual case like I I had a you know I have a, have a, a male acquaintance who um got some some stock because he was working at a startup yeah. while he was married and then legally his his now ex-wife is entitled to half of the stock yeah. right um and so even if we're gonna say okay well like she didn't do anything to deserve it which obviously she did right uh but you know because we all know how marriage works uh she she earned it but um it's it's because of how our society is set up to only have women rely on men and not have any other social safety net, right? Like the fact that you and individual man are experiencing some financial pain right now is in fact a broader symptom of how our society has no intention of supporting women. So it's on you. And I, I, I'm, I'm very sorry. Yeah. Maybe you should that, have funded a social safety net. I'm very sorry that this net. whole. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm very, I'm very sorry that this whole system that is set up to disadvantage women is not working out for you right now. <laughs> right. That must be, that must be so fucking hard. It must be so know? hard for you. Um, but I, you know, going to Jane Ward, going back to Jane Ward, uh, I, I think, like, that book's conclusions are so a little bit like Lysistrata in the sense that, like, there's, like, there's an accidental, like, uh, answer in the coming together of people. Like, perhaps it's accidental in Lysistrata, but, like, Jane Ward's, like, really intentional saying, like, actually, like, you can like men and men can like women and we can, you know, I, I think she has this line where she's just like, the bar shouldn't be your worst romantic relationship. Like the bar should be like your friendships, right? Like this is oh, where, so beautiful. yeah, this is where we have like a great model of like love and community. And, and I thought what, what Jane Ward says a lot about like, you know, she, she talks about like how people are always like, oh, well, it's just such a tragedy that I can't choose to be gay because I have to like men. She's like, no, you don't. You can choose whatever you want. That blew my mind. I called like yeah, there's there's that four friends, and I was like, can I choose? And I did. I was like, okay, let's go. Like, let's choose. Let's choose differently. Let's have some fun. And I did. It was wonderful. Yeah, there's that joke about how how there's there's no sure proof that sexuality isn't a choice than straight women right <laughs> um, like when people talk about born this way right um but yeah, i love but, i love that book because it's like we'll just try it 
like I, I was reading yeah. that to a friend and she was like she was like I don't know I don't know if sexual if sexuality like if other people's sexuality should be your like vacation in Cabo and I was talking to a queer friend and I was like I don't know what do you think she goes oh my god I want to be somebody's vacation in Cabo she's like try it out she's like she's like that's what a fun thing to be yeah she's right? like great I'll take all the divorced yeah. exploring ladies she's like let's fucking go so that was that felt to me like permission and and I think I, I want to be clear too like I think too the idea of like queering the narrative is not just like okay well you know if you're a cishet woman now you're dating women like I think the idea of queering the narrative is is more about like open up what your idea of what a relationship can be right that they're not just these binaries that like relationship and happiness can come from community can come from like so many other models of building home and life that you do not have to just settle for like a man named Kevin in a home in the suburbs with the live laugh love sticker on the wall right like it can be different yeah I I think a lot about um this uh, so in the book, uh, you are someone you love. Um, there's there's a chapter about how abortion is queer, and she talks about how, um, you know, intentionality and consent and separating reproduction from sexuality and from womb having and all of that is inherently queer. Um, and yeah, I mean. I'm sorry. I keep I keep being so on the nose. I'm like the solution is to divorce things from yes, each other. Yes, divorce. The solution but, uh, is divorce. Thank you, Donna. Divorce. You know the, your concept of love and fulfillment from your concept of what you think marriage should yes. be, and then and I mean it's it's great if they exist together. I mean they should <laughs> absolutely, but to interrogate your I, your assumptions about what those things look like and mean. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think, too, a lot, you know, like, divorcing these ideas of, like, right, like, we have this idea of, like, (laughs) marriages, you know, one girl named Ashley, one man named Kevin, and they live in a suburb, (laughs) and they have three children, and they're all in baseball, and, you know, they have a little pumpkin on their porch for Halloween, like, that is like the ideal is very specific. Um, but like well, that's the ideal. Definitely <laughs> and Yeah. And like, definitely divorcing <laughs> Sorry you go. No, let's divorce Kevin immediately. Yeah. Ashley's free now. Yeah, let's look <laughs> Yeah. I mean, she can keep the pumpkin. She can keep the pumpkin in the divorce. There's just something about fall, you know. Yeah, yeah. Ashley's very um, Christian girl, Autumn, but like like even just like like taking that idea of what life should be and divorcing yourself from it and saying like, I can find happiness and fulfillment in other ways. Like I can, you know, like do artificial insemination and get my children that way. Like I don't have to settle for poor Kevin. I don't even know a Kevin and I'm picking on him so hard, but like, You know, let's make sure Kevin gets all of the baseball drop-offs right. and pickups. In this not divorce, hashtag though. not um, all Kevins, but this Kevin specifically. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah, but like just like well, opening up your idea of what a life should be and what happiness should be, I think is yeah. 
And let's definitely divorce marriage and adulthood. Yes, divorce right? marriage and adulthood. <laughs> like you, it's not, yes, like you're not an adult just because you got married, right? And that's not a Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, for all that you and I have, have pretty different backgrounds, I mean, I was 22 when I got married. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I definitely was not, I, I mean, I was being pressured to do so. I was not, it was not the same set of pressures that you faced, but, but in some ways it was, it was like, you know, our mothers were sort of like, well, if you're gonna be together, then why not get married and be together? You know? Um, and I think that I just like thought it would make me an adult if I did it. Yeah. It'd be like, I would, I will have it all figured out if I do this. Mm-hmm. And and maybe we're similar in the way that, you know, I'm a, I'm a little type A, like I'm a little achiever, like success oriented. And so for me, it was like, well, a good life means you have graduated from college, you've gotten honors, you then you found a person and you got married and now you are like... <laughs> renovating an old home and having children and and it was just like because these are the markers of adulthood for everybody not just people raised homeschooled in Texas uh that they are universal for so many people but they're not like they're absolutely not and that's why we're seeing more and more people opt out of marriage because it's not it's not beneficial and it sucks it does a lot of the time. And yeah, I think there's a yes. there's a good reason why, you know, there are all these tropes with with young people who have not been married before about, you know, like, oh, you got to you got to basically like Heimlich a ring out of him. Right. Um, but then uh, but then once it's like once you're talking about people in their 30s and 40s who have been married before it's like the woman's like yeah i don't think it's for me and the guy's like how quickly can i lock down a new emotional labor (laughs) source this american ex-wife is a podcast created by me liz lens and zachary oren smith who wears the best sweaters in the midwest if you like what you heard you can buy my book this american ex-wife which will be published on february 20th 2024 pre-orders really help determine the success of a book and you can pre-order the book through your local bookstore bookshop.org or wherever books are sold yes even that evil website thank you so much and may i leave you uh with a lesser known um line from hammurabi's code may the dresses we burn light the way We should get my kids to do that because they can go so deep. Oh, I bet. That's so fun. I am listening.